Production support for Earth Eats comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. I have young fishermen coming to say, you might not remember me, I met you in the 80s. They go, I've always wanted to be able to order one of your nets. This week on the show, we meet net makers in the commercial fishing industry on the Oregon coast. We hear about a campus emergency summer meal project. Harvest Public Media has a story on large-scale sustainable agriculture and a piece about farmers and mental health. That's all just ahead, so stay with us. Renee Reed has news. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. The families of three Tyson workers in Iowa who died after contracting COVID-19 are suing the company. The lawsuit alleges that Tyson knowingly put employees at risk and lied to keep production lines rolling. The lawsuit outlines safety protocol shortcomings and company managers assuring workers that the facility was safe in order to, quote, induce them to continue working despite the uncontrolled COVID-19 outbreak at the plant and health risks associated with working. The company has denied any wrongdoing. Tyson reverted to its pre-pandemic absentee policy in early June, despite thousands of workers testing positive for the virus. Workers were punished for staying home due to illness under those rules. Two other workers unrelated to the lawsuits at the same plant in Waterloo have died after COVID-19 infection, and 1,000 of the plant's 2,800 workers have contracted the virus. In May, family members of an employee at a Tyson plant in Amarillo, Texas, filed a wrongful death lawsuit after the worker contracted the coronavirus and died. ProPublica obtained documents from several meat processing facilities that revealed a pattern of chaos and delay. Emails between health officials and Tyson Chicken Plant in North Carolina revealed management was slow to confirm infections at its facility. The nonprofit investigative news organization found that 25 out of 87 meatpacking plant workers who died of coronavirus across the country worked for Tyson. Business and trade groups across the country have lobbied hard for extra legal protection against lawsuits related to coronavirus. They argue that special measures are needed to prevent a wave of lawsuits. The White House and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell have echoed those messages. Iowa passed a new law shielding businesses and health care providers from virus-related lawsuits, though it excludes cases that lead to hospitalization or death. A handful of other states, including Alabama, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Utah, have passed similar measures. Families of workers who died from coronavirus have filed lawsuits against Smithville Foods, JBS USA, Amazon, and Walmart. Recent data from the Centers for Disease Control indicates that more than 17,000 meat and poultry processing facility workers in the U.S. have been infected with COVID-19 as of May 31st, including 91 deaths. 
Advocates have estimated the number of infected to be much higher, with ProPublica reporting more than 24,000 cases linked to meat packing plants. The CDC data also shows that the overwhelming majority of workers were people of racial and ethnic minorities. Out of the nearly 10,000 cases where race and ethnicity were reported, 87% were minorities, including 56% Hispanic, 19% Black, and 12% Asian. That report comes to us from Chad Bouchard. For Earth Eats News, I'm Brene Reed. Climate change and the environmental damage caused by large-scale agriculture have researchers looking for ways to increase productivity without furthering harm. Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer looks at a network of research sites across the country combining their local data into a national understanding of what might need to change. On a windy June day, microbiologist Tom Mormon lifts a metal lid and reveals a collection of bottles, tubes, meters, and cables in a shallow pit on the edge of a farm Samples. field. So you see in those, those bottles, and they label 17, 18, 19, and 22. Mormon works for the Agricultural Research Service of the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Ames, Iowa. He explains that each bottle collects water running off one specific plot. His research team grows corn and soybeans. About half the plots are business as usual, planted, fertilized, harvested, and so forth, the way a local farmer might do it. But the others are what Mormon and his colleagues call aspirational. So we have two basic ones that we're looking at here. Rye cover crops, which we've looked at for quite some time. But this particular treatment, instead of rye, we're trying to grow uh, winter camelina. Camelina is an oil seed that can be planted in the fall and harvested in the summer even as soybeans are growing in the rows around it. Mormon's looking at whether the camelina helps reduce nutrient runoff. He measures that in the water collected in those plastic bottles. He's also hopeful camelina or some other option could ultimately offer traditional Midwest farmers a third cash crop in addition to corn and soybeans. Agricultural scientists in the Midwest have spent a lot of time thinking about another big third crop, and we haven't come up with it exactly yet. Mormon's team looks at row crops and water quality, with additional locations in Minnesota and Wisconsin. They're one site in the Long-Term Agroecosystem Research Network, which has 18 sites across the country. The overarching goal is to figure out how agriculture can scale up to feed more people while also reducing negative environmental impacts. And that takes time. In Michigan, the Kellogg Biological Station has been studying the impact of no-till farming for so long, Nick Haddad says the results are conclusive. Not turning over the land before planting is beneficial when you do it year after year. If we had stopped at any point in that 30 years, we wouldn't know the extent that a less intense cropping system ha has on yield. Plus, Haddad said no-till leads to higher soil moisture and keeps more carbon in the ground. He says the results likely would hold true on 20 to 40 percent of upper Midwest cornfields. But the agricultural landscape looks different in Nebraska, where there's more livestock and less water. The Platte River High Plains Aquifer site of the Agroecosystem Network has records on groundwater, pesticide residue, productivity. We have several long-term data sets, several of them 
goes back to the 70s, few goes back to the 40s. Tala Awada of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln is a co-leader of the site. The groundwater fluctuation goes back to the early uh, 1900s. These data have helped land managers advise local farmers for decades. Now, using the same business-as-usual versus aspirational framework, the whole research network is exploring water quantity and quality, greenhouse gas emissions, and other environmental impacts across many agricultural landscapes. The coordinated effort aims to illustrate how the different regions are related. We are all facing changes in the environment, changes in climate that one of us cannot capture. USDA's Teferi Tsegaye is the national coordinator of the network. He says with a growing global population and no additional arable land, sustainably increasing production is a must. We have one earth, basically. So you have to increase productivity with the same land that we are currently, uh, you know, producing. Researchers hope their work will demonstrate viable ways for farmers to do that. Amy Mayer, Harvest Public Media. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Production support comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Pacific seafood depends on skilled workers, and not just the ones out on the boats. In workshops that dot the Oregon coast, industrial craftspeople make and modify the fishing gear behind our seafood meals. In part three of our series on the Oregon fishing industry, Josephine McRobbie and Joe O'Connell speak with two of these makers, who are factoring sustainability into their gear designs. Sarah Skamzer makes and modifies commercial fishing nets in Newport, Oregon. Like a midwater net, we'll say, start out with a 100-foot mesh, and the way it's tapered as a funnel is really the mesh size. She got her start on small fishing boats. I love the fishing. I love being at sea. I did crabbing. I did some trawl work, mostly with salmon fishing. Net skills, like sewing and splicing, became one more thing to help Sarah land a gig. In the late 70s, early 80s. I was bucking to get on a big boat, big money, big boat. And I was a welder, all these boats are steel, had good sea legs, had proven myself to be strong enough to handle everything. And you know, a winning personality and you name it, and I just needed this net skill to get on these boats where guys were making a lot of money. And so that's why I was doing the nets. That big money, big boat dream, it hit a dead end. And so I asked one of the owners if I could possibly get in and these guys just absolutely turned like purple and just uh, I no <laughs> they didn't take me seriously I just was left out of the picture because I'm a woman 
So Sarah channeled her energy into net making. We've kind of cornered the shrimp net market. And so the bottom line to that is I invoice those people now. Networkers have a special skill set. Maneuvering a needle loaded with twine has to become second nature. You know, you don't, you can't just kind of get it. You have to really get it, and you have to move like lightning. When you're bringing five-inch mesh to eight-inch mesh, you do a thing called a baiting, where you're picking up two meshes of the smaller mesh. And so you do one, skip one, do two, skip one, do one, skip one, do two, skip one. And I'm saying that in my head all the time. Skip one, do two, skip one, do one, skip one, do two. And so you have to have your hands moving really fast to get this to pay. Do two, skip one, do one, skip one, do two, skip one, do one, skip one. And so you have to have that sing-songy rhythm going. Otherwise, you're not going to. You're a person that that netchup will not want. Sarah and her team have earned quite a reputation for their work. I have young fishermen coming to say, you might not remember me, I met you in the 80s. They go, I've always wanted to be able to order one of your nets, and my owner said I can order a net. It just lifts a person up to know that I have touched so many lives with these nets. About a half hour south on the coastal highway, Leonard Van Curler is also making fishing gear. Some of the tools he uses are similar to Sarah's. Well, you've got a needle right in front of you, and that's what it's called, is a needle. And that's but what he's making is a totally different animal, and there's a made to catch a totally different animal. The Dungeness crab, one of Oregon's most lucrative catches. This summer it went up to $8 a pound for crab. To catch the Dungeness, Leonard needed crab pots, and lots of them. He already had the welding skills he needed to make them himself. So I started making crab pots then in earnest. I started building a couple hundred a year. And he tinkered with the size, design, and materials as the years went on. I wanted to improve the crab pot. Everybody wants to make the best mousetrap, right? In some ways, making a crab pot is simple. Well, I told everybody, rule number one is make sure they can get into it. (laughs) Rule number two is keep them, but I mean, make sure they can get into it. (laughs) But other parts of the process, bending steel, wrapping it with rubber, knitting wire mesh, these things require a practiced hand. It took a while to learn to knit, you know. you watch a guy for one minute, you know what the initial process is, you know. You learn how to roll your hand when you're knitting. And then after doing it for 40 years, you learn how to make it look good. Crab pot design, it's both form and function. That's the neat thing about this each fishery. It's totally sustainable because of the escape rings we put in the pots. Anything smaller than a four or a six and a quarter inch crab doesn't stay in the pot. They're made so that the crab can go in there, walk through the triggers, then the triggers close back down and he can't walk back out again. Unless he's small enough to get through the escape rings. 
and the escape rings will let him walk right out again if he's small enough. Design also matters to Sarah Scamzer. I redesigned the ye old traditional shrimp net. That's just using, we use knotless netting from Japan that goes through the water easier. At the back of Sarah's shrimp nets is another innovation that she helped perfect. And it basically is a barbecue grill. It looks just like a barbecue grill made out of aluminum at the back of the net at an angle. So it's three quarter inch between the bars of the barbecue grill a big hole at the top. All the fish you could accidentally catch with a shrimp net, this excluder helps keep them out. A shrimp are small, Oregon pink shrimp, and so they go through the grid, and the fish just go swimming right out. And so there's no, virtually no bycatch. As it co-evolves with regulations, new gear like these excluders is making a difference in the local habitat. We found solutions for bycatch reduction, and it's very exciting. The shrimp fishery is deemed MSC-certified sustainable first pink shrimp fishery in the world that's going on right now. She gets a kick out of opening mines to more sustainable gear. We built a halibut excluder for cod in Alaska, and we built 17 of them. It was brand new, and a fisherman came in. He's been fishing cod for 35 years, and he was just really not liking it. He's like, there's just holes everywhere. I said, no, there's slots. The cod will stay in. And so he goes up there, and so he told, he said, put it on my cod trawl. And they were fishing clean. And um, (laughs) then he saw, and so he saw it right away, that that did make a difference. And then he got on the radio and he goes, hey, you guys got a halibut excluder over there? I got two, you're gonna need one, man. This works good. And so he took ownership of it and the fleet took ownership of it, and the fishermen took ownership of it, and then they start competing to fish clean. And that's the secret. That story comes to us from producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell. O'Connell conducted the original research in August 2019 for the Oregon Folklife Network, with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. When schools closed and businesses began to shut down due to COVID-19, organizations and individuals stepped up to help people who may have suddenly lost income or otherwise needed assistance. On the campus of Indiana University, the IU Food Institute suspected that there were people in the IU community who might need help with meals. We were thinking about students who had supported themselves with jobs, maybe in the service industry, and everything was closed. All the restaurants were closed. And, you know, what kind of situation were they, were they facing? The director of the IU Food Institute saw an opportunity to help. Carl Ipsen, I'm a professor of history at IU Bloomington and the director of the IU Food Institute. So he started a conversation with the executive director of IU Dining. My name is Rahul Srivastav. In the conversation, it it emerged, the IU dining staff was still employed, but obviously feeding many fewer people because the dining halls were, for the most part, closed. Well, we have the cooks, but we don't have the ingredients. We don't have the, the food for them to cook, so we need to find a way to get that. So Carl appealed to a list of people associated with the IU Food Institute and sent out a call for donations. Using the Food Institute and the contacts we have there and sort of with the foundation, doing some fundraising among alumni and 
They quickly raised the funding they needed to get started and spread the word about the emergency meal project. I think it was four days that we pulled this off. We talked about it on Thursday. By Monday morning, we were serving our first meals. David and Ashley were key in this area. They started developing menus based off locally provided foods from the IU farm and um, the local ingredient providers that we have. Along with the chefs led by Ashley Massey and David Talent, we had a good systems team that took this on, prepared a form that students could order these meals from, put in their preferences and allergies. Ashley Massey, she had the whole form laid out, how it transfers to a spreadsheet, who's on the delivery piece of it, who's coming and picking it up. As you saw, a couple of cars just drove by here picking it up. She had all that organized. They set up a system, an online ordering process, a time and a place for meal pickups, and a delivery process for those who can't make it to the pickup spot. And through the uh, Food Institute intern and the Campus Kitchen intern, we have been able to, to deliver meals to people who are, for whatever reason, whether they were quarantined or didn't have transportation or maybe even were sick, um, couldn't, couldn't make it here. So we've been doing deliveries every day as well. And it worked out. By the 12th week in early July, they had provided more than 3,500 meals, and they had their biggest day that week, 101 meals in one day. Of course, I wanted to know about the meals themselves. What kind of food were they serving? Today there was a vegan pasta uh, with a great vegetable sauce and sautéed snap peas, which are in season right now. There is a full meal. It's highly nutritious. There's a salad, there's an entree, and very well portioned. It can be stretched out of lunch to a snack or even dinner at times. The, the food's been amazing, actually. And um, yesterday, just yesterday, there was a stir-fried rice. And I'm vegan, so I'm going to give you the vegan description. So it, it was stir-fried rice with a lot of vegetables in it, and it was absolutely delicious. And and uh, I know the non-vegans got pot stickers, which was made from scratch over here. So uh, the, the chefs are getting, it's also very good for our staff, you know, they're getting, it's, you know, in this break, when you're cooking, you need, it's a momentum thing, you know, you keep going with it. And right now they're cooking and they're, they're innovating more and more. And uh, so uh, it, it has been a lot of, uh, it has been a lot of fun with them, with the meals. The emergency meal project will close down at the end of July as IU Dining prepares for the return of students to campus. Carl and Rahul are brainstorming and working with the administration on more stable and sustainable ways to address food insecurity on campus. Check our website for more information about the Emergency Meal Project, eartheats.org. Studies have found higher rates of mental illness and suicide for farmers. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has farmers facing unprecedented challenges. As Natalie Krebs reports for Harvest Public Media, this has some worried about a mental health crisis in the farming community. Bill Tenninger has been a hog farmer for 50 years. He's been through droughts, market crashes, and even other viral outbreaks. But he says this pandemic is unlike any of those. So we've experienced everything, and I got to tell you, I have never seen anything like this. In, in all the years that I've operated. Tenninger operates a farm in the northwest Iowa town of Lamars, and he's on the National Pork Board. He says since pork processing facilities have slowed due to the COVID-19 outbreaks in the workforce, he's been struggling with what to do with 2,500 excess pigs with no end in sight. You know, if we don't get more of them moved, uh, 
the next group of pigs moves up and that number is going to start increasing. Tenninger says cramming them into pens isn't good for their health and not being able to sell them is taking a heavy toll on his farm. Basically, I'm using up my retirement plan to, you know, to continue to operate. Many farmers like Tenninger are under an extreme amount of stress from the pandemic. David Brown is a behavioral health specialist with Iowa State University Extension. He says he's anticipating seeing more farmers struggle. We may see more um, uh, concerns related to alcohol abuse, concerns related to depression, uh, some forms of trauma if they are um, euthanizing livestock, things like that. We're also concerned about a potential spike in suicides. As restaurants closed and crop prices plummeted, groups such as the Farm Bureau and Iowa Pork Industry Center have been sending out resources to farmers on managing their mental health and stress. Senator Chuck Grassley said last month he's planning to ask the federal government for additional mental health resources for farmers. But the financial toll has already been devastating. Family farms filing for bankruptcy jumped 23 percent in March, a sharp increase from the past 12 months. Mental health advocates say this financial stress can quickly trickle down. Tammy Jacobs is the coordinator of the Iowa Concern Hotline, which helps farmers with financial, legal, and mental health concerns. Those financial concerns will always lead to, you know, relationship issues, issues within the family, concerns about how they're going to continue to be able to keep on farming. Jacob says Iowa Concern is creating a new state-funded program to help farmers deal with the effects of COVID-19. She says one part of the new program will try to steer farmers who call in for financial help to counseling. But the COVID-19-related stress for farmers isn't all financial. Some farmers may be facing traumatic experiences from having to do things like euthanize healthy animals. They're going to be reflecting back on all of the things they're going through, and some of them are definitely going to have PTSD. That's Ted Matthews. He's the director of Minnesota Rural Mental Health. Matthews has worked with farmers for decades, and he says it can be hard for them to seek help. That's because so many feel their outcome and even their identity is tied to working hard. I have found that in working with farmers, you have to look at them differently than other occupations because to them it's not an occupation, it's a way of life. But Matthew says many farmers need to learn to cope with the things they don't have control over. Kevin Dietzel says it took him a while to seek help for his depression, which started when he opened his dairy farm in Jewel, Iowa, a few years ago. He says he struggled working long hours all alone while making no profit. That's when depression started to really kick in in a really hard way. And then I started to have days where I just... I almost couldn't get up and function. Dietzel says he understands why farmers might not seek help, even now. I think there are, within this sort of male-dominated, macho uh, farming community, I think there, there's still a lot of people that would not admit to, you know, having a problem or wouldn't want to deal with it in that way. Dietzel says he continues to get help today. He says it's one of the ways he's able to cope with the pandemic now. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Natalie Krebs. Please know that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides free and confidential support for people in distress. You can call toll-free anytime for you or your loved ones. 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. That's it for our show. 
Thanks for listening. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Joe O'Connell, Rahul Srivastav, and Carl Ibsen. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. <laughs>